Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. It's the KRMG Morning News with Dan Potter. I love this book, Gastro Obscura. A Food Adventurer's Guide. You know me from the show. You know why I love this book, because I love food adventures. This is from the uh, same people who brought us Atlas Obscura, a compendium of uh, interesting and um, fun facts about all different parts of the globe. Only Gastro Obscura is focused on food from all over the world and interesting food stories. And joining us on the KRMG Morning News is Dylan Thuris, one of the co-authors. Morning, Dylan. Morning. Thanks for having me, Dan. I, I've been teasing uh, this this interview with the one of the Oklahoma stories that you have in the book. Uh, you have a whole section, and you, I guess just to kind of explain, you you go continent by continent, country by country, even region by region within the country, and you find interesting food stories to tell. And looking at the Great Plains of the United States, you have a, a couple of pages devoted to Oklahoma. And what I've been telling people is you got to hear about a time when Oklahoma, when it, when saying the words eating crow, were, it was more than just an expression. It was actually a food trend. That's, that's, that's right. Uh, this is back in the 1930s and, and specifically sort of focused in Tulsa um, because there were just tons of, of birds. And this guy, a, a county health superintendent named Dr. Stallings, thought, okay, people are really hungry. This is sort of the Great Depression era. And also there are all of these uh, these birds. So he started holding dinner parties for what he called quail. Mm. And by the time people said, oh, this quail is pretty interesting. It's really good. He said, well, actually, you've been eating crow, uh, but you should keep doing it. And the governor of Oklahoma uh, was was behind it. They founded the State House Crow Meat Lovers Association. Uh, and basically, you know, it, it really caught on. People kind of went crazy for it. In the mid-30s, there was this huge enthusiasm for, for catching and cooking crow. It was both cheap and uh, pretty good, actually. People would kind of coat the, the crows in, in lard or fat and then, and then cook them in a um, sealed uh, pan. Uh. And, uh, you know, eventually it kind of fell out of favor. Uh, times got easier. You know, eating crow, I think, was, was associated with sort of those lean times. But uh, it's very popular for a while to eat crow. I've been looking, Dylan, searching high and low all over Tulsa and its uh, suburbs. I have yet to come <laughs> across a good grilled crow restaurant, though I will continue continue my search. Did I capsule? This is your chance. This, this is your chance, Dan, to, to bring it back. <laughs> it's my retirement plan. I'm going to open a crow stand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, did I did I get that right about how you kind of put this together? Did you start with the large view and kind of zero in continent? I mean, how did you do it? It, it had to take a while. Yeah, yeah, it did. It's, it's a book about four years in the making, and it started in the same way that Atlas Obscura started, which is we, we reached out to our community of users and travelers uh, who are all over the world. And we basically said, you know, we had done this with, with places, with the first Atlas book, and said, okay, we tell us about these incredible places near you that you grew up near, that you found on your travels, that you think deserve to be celebrated, but are, are kind of these unsung wonders. And we realized that you could, that food was just another incredible lens of exploring 
the world's history, its cultures, its uh, natural resources. And so we did the same thing. We asked our community member about dishes they, they grew up eating, about interesting, very local uh, uh, ingredients. And so they sent in a bunch of stuff. And then my co-author, Cecily Wong, and I sort of sat down, mapped it to the world, and started sort of figuring out where we wanted to find more things or sort of maybe dig deeper into a story. So about 50% of the book comes from suggestions. Uh, 50% comes from Cecily sort of going and exploring the world and, and tasting things and trying things. And uh, yeah, and that's how we did it. You're exactly right. We kind of made a master, a big, big map of the whole world and, and mapped all of this stuff to it. Uh, and it's been a really fun project. Of course, what is, uh, you know, one person's normal day-to-day food is somebody else's um, exotic food, weird food. Was that kind of yeah. a, uh, was that kind of a trap you had to avoid falling into? Well, I'll say this. I mean, so I'm, I'm from Minnesota with Scandinavian heritage. So I grew up eating things like pickled herring and lessa, but also something called lutefisk. Lutefisk, yeah. Familiar with it. Yeah. yeah, it's dried fish that is then soaked in lye to rehydrate it. It is at that point uh, poisonous, would basically murder you. Uh, and then it's washed into the lye is washed out and you end up with a kind of fish jelly. This is a very kind of standard food in the upper Midwest. Uh, but a lot of people would hear that and say, you know, no thanks. And I think the point is, is as you as you so uh, well phrased it, what is normal is entirely relative to where you are from. So there's no sort of place of normalcy to stand and call something else weird. Uh, it's all kind of like just what you were used to uh, eating in your own kind of food cultures. And so, yeah, I mean, what we wanted to do was basically celebrate all of the diversity and pluralism and interesting food stories out there. It's not that you need to go and eat every one of these dishes. It's okay to not like stuff. But uh, but it is, I think, helpful and exciting to sort of learn about what is out there in the world. Well, and a lot of it's history, too. Um, for instance, how do we do this delicately? The history of the graham cracker might surprise some people. Will you tell me about Presbyterian <laughs> Minister Sylvester Graham? I'll let you get into this sensitive subject instead of me, Dylan. Uh, yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, so the graham cracker, people might know this, but the graham cracker was invented as sort of part of a crusade, and it was a crusade against um, self-abuse. It was basically part of a, a whole uh, belief system around how foods should be used uh, to kind of basically stop pleasure. Like, wow. it was like, we only want to make foods that don't bring pleasure, and we want to make foods that are so unpleasurable that you, you, will, that you won't self-pleasure yourself. And so this was the idea of the graham cracker, you know. Um, and, and, and one of the major followers of this movement by the minister, Sylvester Graham, was a guy named John Harvey Kellogg. Uh, who you might recognize that yeah. name, Kellogg. Uh, and Kellogg was a Seventh-day Adventist, which is also a very um, kind of strict religious, you know, or, or, order. They have a, uh, he believed that a vegetarian diet would help curb, curb uh, sexual urges. So this is basically what happened. It was, it came into the world as almost part of a um, sanitarium where these bland foods were made to, to help people, uh, you know, stay Stay the course. Yeah. Stay, stay uh, uh, morally centered. There have been meals. There have been meals that have gotten me pretty excited, Dylan. But I'll just leave it, <laughs> leave it right, right Boy. there. I, I love food. What can I say? 
<laughs> what about for you? What what revelation really stands out in in those four years of of looking at all of this? Is there uh, a thread of commonality that societies have about their food, or is there one particular story that stands out to you? Well, there's a couple of things that 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 jump out. At, you know, as you look at this, one is just how connected we all are through our food traditions, and how many parallels there are. You know, I, growing up in Minnesota, I would go to the state fair and see these. 90 pound blocks of butter being carved into the likenesses of, of uh, county beauty queens. And, uh, you know, it's a thing that's a thing you can find across the United States at different state fairs. But there's also a Tibetan tradition of carving butter sculpture that is incredible and beautiful. And they add mineral pigments to make them different colors. And, uh, and so just sort of the ways in which you find repetition and parallels across the world, you can find pickled fish not just in Scandinavian foods, but in almost every culture, there's a version of it. But but some of my favorite stories actually are about foods that are very familiar, but the the background is less familiar. So one story I, I really loved learning about was pad thai. Um, I'm have you? Mm, I'm assuming uh, maybe you've eaten pad thai. <laughs> many 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 different kinds of pad thai. Some great, some less yeah. than memorable. But yes, a delicious. Uh, I mean, it's kind of an ubiquitous uh, Thai dish. At this right, at this point, it is it is up there with kind of um, fried rice and and pizza as kind of you know a staple of the American diet. The, the interesting thing about it though is that it is not a kind of um, ancient heritage dish of Thailand. It was basically invented out of whole cloth at the end of the 30s by the then uh, prime minister and, and military dictator of Thailand, a guy hmm. named uh, Plak Phibun uh, Sunkram, and he wanted to create a, a more kind of national identity for what was then Siam. And so he came up with these 12 cultural mandates and they, he renamed it from Siam to Thailand. He made these edicts about sort of what uh, language, you know, how language should be used, about even dress codes. He told all the men that they should wear hats. That wasn't really enforced. But one of the other things, and this was, you know, not great. It was fairly oppressive to a lot of the ethnic groups who were in, uh, in Thailand at the time. But one of the things he did was he said, we have a new national dish. It is called Pad Thai. It was made from Chinese noodles, which is sort of an irony of it. It, it, it actually, you know, has these origins that are not uh, Thai at all. But rice noodles were a very effective, very efficient way of getting people calories. They were cheaper than, than other, uh, other ways, like just rice. Uh, and, so, and so he created this dish. He added tamarind and palm sugar and chilies. It was something that, you know, he said he grew up uh, eating. And, and that is how it came to exist, basically, as a government edict. Uh, but it, it worked. I mean, it became the National Dish of Thailand, and it's obviously something that, that now everyone is, is familiar with. And I thought that was really interesting. I mean, it's a dish that united a country. That is amazing. I, I want to throw, yeah. pardon the pun, some red meat out to, and in this case, it'll actually be cheese, <laughs> uh, to the folks who are waiting for some really kind of food story, uh, because I'm not afraid to go there. Will you tell me about the cheese that's only done when the maggots are uh, ready? Oh, this is this is sort of uh, one of these famous uh, uh, questionable food items. But uh, again, you know, I mean, I think if this is the thing you grew up eating, it probably won't bother you. But uh, so you know, in uh, it's called uh, kazumarzu, and in Italy, um, it's basically you start with a big wheel of pecorino, and the thing that makes this specific is you cut a little hole in the in the cheese and so that way flies can get in 
and they lay their eggs there. They make maggots in there. And the maggots actually create this, uh, these proteins, these enzymes that break down the cheese and start to give it this kind of different texture. It makes it kind of gooier. And uh, it's got almost a sort of gorgonzola-esque hmm. taste hmm. Uh, once the maggots are done. So to eat it, you basically, you, 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 uh, you got to open it up. Be a little bit careful because the maggots can jump, and so you don't want them to jump. They they are able to jump and actually bite you. Uh, and you also, if you're going to eat a piece with maggots in it, you uh, and you don't have to, but if you're going to eat, you're going to eat it with the maggots. They're still alive. You want to make sure you give them a good chew. You don't want them. You don't want them going oh, down still oh, ripping. So right. this is this is right. you know. But look, I've eaten. I've eaten. The history of food is almost entirely about finding every available calorie sure that includes bugs and blood and fat and eggs of every single animal variety and then finding ways to uh preserve them in ingenious ways and i think you know this definitely isn't going to be palatable for everybody but it is a good example of the kind of crazy ingenuity that humans have when it comes to finding and preserving various various forms of of calories including including maggots uh in the middle of your cheese well i tell you what just just like the the pad thai did for the thai people i i think that the food can unite us in a lot of different ways and learning about food and in the fascinating <laughs> way that you and cecily have presented it here it certainly helps uh dylan thuris thank you of course anytime thanks for having me Appreciate it, man. I heard Cecily yesterday on NPR. She just, she crushed it. She was fantastic, and you are just as good. I, I really appreciate it. I wish I had some of the, the foods to sample in our interview, too. But ah, uh, um, Yeah, next time next time we need to send out a, a package. Yeah, right. Definitely. Dylan, thank you again so much. I appreciate it, and have a great day. Yeah, thanks for talking with me. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.